says nature forces nature forces nature Hi Andy Daniel Haas how are you Very good so good we to miss, see you again We miss you up here and you know uh, uh bread is 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 not as old as homebrewed beer so I I think of you often when I make my bread, but it, uh, one day I will advance to your level of, you know, Zymergy. <laughs> Actually, you inspired my baking. I have my, I have two sourdough starters in my fridge constantly going, and the one is rising right now. So tell me, they have names? Do they have names? They don't. What? No. They're not a true sourdough. It's rising in the Dutch oven, just like I, like I learned from the best. So here's Yay! my story with you. So I was pastoring in Provo, Utah, yes. and we were getting ready for some sort of church event. I don't recall what it was, but we were working in the kitchen there by the fellowship hall, and all of a sudden shows up this Mormon mama with a loaf of bread. <laughs> Did it have Enter. rock on it? Was it traditional? You'll have to remind me. Yeah, no, you had something on there. Yeah. Yeah. I think I remember what it was. So here's Andy Pitcher Davis with her bread, and she carries it around like that's a thing she does every day. And I guess these days you did that a lot of times. So what happened there? Let me explain how I got to you. This must have been in 2011, I believe, because it was just after my father had died. I, um, I love conceptual art, and I love, uh, and I love art, and I love community, and I love those that are... That, that feed my culture and feed a culture. So I had started this conceptual art project with a single loaf of bread. I wanted to know if I could feed a culture, the sourdough, how it's the start. And I wanted to be the start. And my father was quite ill and uh, he had stroke complications. So you didn't know if he was speaking, uh, that he was lucid or not. He had had a stroke and he was he needed 24 hour care for 18 months before he passed. And, he was very thin, he couldn't swallow, he'd shake, and he, he one day, he, he, he was near death, and he goes, must find someone. And we brought him the phone book, and it wasn't anybody in his Rolodex, we bought him a photo album, it wasn't anything. We brought him the scriptures. He started at the very end of Mormon scriptures, because there's a lot of Mormon scriptures, and we worked all the way backwards, all the way backwards, all the way backwards until, boom, Isaiah 54. And he said, Cyrus, Cyrus is the one we must find. And I was like, why, Dad? Isaiah 54 is Cyrus. I call thee by name, even though you do not know me. I am Jehovah. And he gives Cyrus a work to do. And he goes, because Cyrus prepared the way for Christ. And I was like, yeah, but dad, what does this have to do with you? Nothing. I remember he was really upset about that question. Nothing. And I was like, dad, what does this have to do with me? Because I don't know if you noticed, my dad is like dying a lot and everything's about me and my sorrow. And he just said, nothing. Christ. Cyrus prepared the way so that Christ could come again. And he was so emphatic about this, Daniel. And here he is, he weighs 110 pounds. He's in this electric wheelchair. We have to suction out the saliva because he's so ill and he's shaking and he's kind of scaring people when he goes places. He uh, insisted 
that he needed to go back to Mormon church and testify of Cyrus. And we're like, all right, whatever the crazy old man needs. So we wheel him into the church and he gets up there and he can barely talk. And it's maybe two weeks before he dies. And he goes, Cyrus, prepare the way for Christ. Amen. And that was it. And we're like, okay, well, he's finally lost it. So he passes away and in between the, he, between him dying and me and the funeral, I'm like, these were the dying words of my father is Cyrus prepares the way for Christ. And so I did a whole bunch of research on Cyrus and Cyrus the great built the greatest empire ever. And of course it came at the end of Belshazzar was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar and the writing on the wall and Babylon fell without a single drop of blood. And Cyrus comes in, who is a Persian. He's not a Jew. He's not a Babylonian, and the first thing he does is free those that are enslaved in Babylon. He, he free, and in our scripture, in our Christian scripture, we have in our Old Testament, Jehovah is the name of the God who speaks to Cyrus, and, and what he's told to do is go rebuild the second temple of the Jews, because the, the Jews had been in exile for 70 years, in captivity for 70 years. He frees the Jews. Some decide to stay like Esther stays in, in Babylon. Um, and he not only rebuilds the temple back in the homeland of the Jews, he uses his own money to teach those who have not been Jewish for more than two generations. It's 70 years. He uses his own funds to teach them to practice their own religion. So number one, he builds sanctuary for others. Well, first he frees them. First, he frees them. Secondly, he builds sanctuary, but that's not enough. What he does third is he says, I don't care if it's my faith or somebody else's faith. I am going to show you how to practice your faith. In doing this, Daniel, he creates the greatest empire on earth. The, the Persian empire for many, for hundreds of years, and it may even live outlive the Republic of the United States, is the greatest empire. And he had figured out that you have more energy and workers, you're the people who build your societies, if they're enslaved, they're not very productive. If they're freed through human rights, given sanctuary and a place to worship, you have those, you're not just dealing with a worker, you're dealing with a congregation. You're not just dealing with a piece of artwork, you're dealing with an icon. It is all amplified. And so, um, so I kind of took this to heart this notion. It wasn't just the Jews that Cyrus freed. He freed them all. He freed all. We've, when we have the, the papyra, we, we find out he frees them all. And the big part of Cyrus, the thing that marks him, and that's religious history. But in human history, the big thing that happens with Cyrus is a thing called the Cylinder of Cyrus. Cylinder of Cyrus is maybe 2,500 years old, and it is the first human rights document. And he's not shy. He's like, I, Cyrus the Great, you know, and very powerful, but I will free you. You are free. You do not have to be enslaved. You are free to worship as you choose. And, and this becomes very significant. It's a pivot point in human history. The first human rights document. So through human rights, through, through rebuilding the sanctuaries of those who choose to worship, and it's not your religion that they're worshiping, he creates the greatest civilization. And I took this to heart and I was just like, this is what America needs. My father told me, and this is what prepares the way because 
because of course the second temple is is built in jerusalem and the house of david is there and through david comes christ and i'm sorry to wax so religious i'm sorry daniel <laughs> so, so this inspired you to yes. find that little I, sanctuary literally, where I serve? literally i was like i must do interfaith work i must do interfaith work and and your congregation was the most interfaith okay you also had great architecture because I, I love art but but your congregation was incredibly interfaith and and not only that it was interracial so you didn't just have do you want to explain the congregation that really inspired me the micronesian congregation yeah, so when i first came where came there it was um all white congregation yeah um, but eventually we adopted what the ucc calls an open and affirming policy yeah and that means we're open to all kinds of folks sexual orientation gender identities national origins and lo and behold um by declaring ourselves and understanding ourselves that way we opened the door for a micronesian micronesian sister congregation not only to rent space with us but to combine life with us so we worship together as one um, and i they were lovely do you remember esther oh absolutely oh absolutely i mean all of them are just such lovely lovely humans so so anyway so one of the things as i and that was such a joy to find like and one of the things that really can and you'll think this is really strange because we live in landlocked utah and i've never been to guam but i also believe in the power of art and i'm going to turn my computer because the reason why it wasn't shocking for me to interact with a Micronesian congregation is because one of my favorite artists is half Micronesian. He paints from memory and he paints children who are Micronesian. I'll turn my computer so you can see this. And this is called, um, I don't know, can you see that painting right there? Oh, I remember her. Yeah. So that painting, it's a painting of a very young girl. She's probably, she's probably nine. And she reminds me of, there was a little girl I made bread for, Alexis. Do you remember Alexis? Mm -hmm. Yes, and I remember Alexis is, is, I made a bread that says, Alexis is pretty and smart. Anyway, what this piece of art had hung in my house, in my, in my home for, I don't know, maybe three years. And I'd had a conversation with this child, I mean, artistically, and I, and I knew which, you know, I, and I have other pieces of multicultural art, but when I finally met in a Micronesian um, congregation, I was like, oh, I know you, you're like that piece of art that I have in my house. I mean, of course I didn't really know this, but I was prepared visually. It wasn't something that was new to me. And that's kind of the power of art. It, it teaches us how to see. And that painting taught me how to see. And then, and then, we, after that we kind of got to work didn't we you looked around and you found things that interested you artistically architecturally culturally so the first thing when you showed up in that kitchen was that countertop everybody hated that old stuff and they wanted to rip it out it's amazing it's the best mid-century modern countertop it's like this yellow with little specks of silver and like squirrel it's so flintstones you know or jetsons it's the jetsons and the kitchen all together, like the cabinetry. But really the thing that inspired me was of course the old photo of Mina Trope. Do you remember Mina Trope? Mm -hmm. And her story of being a feeling like she's an outsider in Mormon, in Mormon Provo, which I have felt, even though I'm Mormon, I felt like the outsider. 
and and of course the old sanctuary and what was the is that what we called it the old sanctuary yeah, and well, it was, we called it Menetropol, but yeah it was the old sanctuary. and, and the stage the, there Mm -hmm. Right. And it was built as part of the Carnegie Mellon building, bu Carnegie building out things. Wasn't it about, built in about the 20s? I believe you even found the school yeah. where the original planks were from. Yeah. Where the flooring were. Well, and the thing, of, well, yes. And it had beautiful light. It had this lovely stage. It had like the old theatrical lights up above. It had this little tiny kitchen. It had a place where you could show a film. It was perfect. Except... It had terrible carpet. Everything was carpeted. And I, I knew, because I love the best in things, I knew that there was probably this beautiful maple flooring right under the carpet. And what do you know, there was. But it wasn't just carpet. It was carpet and ply and a white congregation that I had to convince, you know, because a lot of them were like, What's this going to cost us? What are we going to do? I mean, are you sure? Who's going to clean it? What's going to, I don't know. This is going to, I'm like, no, 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 it's going to be okay. And so what I did, um, well, let me tell you my version of it. My big thing was, um, of course, you remember we're talking about, about Cyrus and about rebuilding sanctuaries. And I was so interested in a lot of the, 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 the men in the, in the Micronesian congregation didn't speak great English and they didn't have great jobs. So I actually hired them to, to rip out the carpet, rip out the plywood and take care of the flooring. We, we redid this tile on the stairs. Remember that it took forever, but we did it. And that, I still have the photos. I still remember this, but the thing that was, is that it was, it became theirs that way. It wasn't like I brought in a crew and just sort of like, you, you sit over there. I'm going to like, I'm going to like pottery barn up this place. I was really interested in what they thought of it and how they were using it. Um, I think there might've been even some Latin groups using it upstairs, but, but this church and the sanctuary belonged to that congregation who showed up in the pews every Sunday, you know? And I noticed they may have even sat a little bit in the back sometimes, you know, but, but they were so warm to me. Like they, we would do the dinners. Was it Thursday that we did dinners and gathered? It was I want to say Tuesday, but. Tuesday. And the food was great. And there was always a plate for me. There was always a place next to, next to the, the, the matriarch of this whole congregation was this wonderful woman, grandmother named Esther who had several children, her husband was not well, and she just kept going, you know, she just kept going. And in her very gentle matriarchal way, and you could tell she was so well-respected, just saved a seat next to me one, one evening. Come sit here, you sit here, you know. And sometimes the English was great and sometimes not, but it was like, I was like, I get to sit next to Esther, oh my gosh. And so, um, and they also worked for the church also, and they cleaned the church, right? They would come in and clean the church. And you know, this is the thing. A lot of, um, a lot of, it's so funny because there's this, there's a couple of housekeeping books where these housekeeping tips on cleaning your house is when you clean your house, you bless your house. Don't think of it as, as labor. Don't think of it as working. Think of it as you blessing each inch of your house. And to take that into sanctuary, and to have somebody who worships, literally worships in the sanctuary, 
to be able to go in and serve it and bless it. It was like the washing of the feet almost, you know? It was such a holy act to me to see them there after Sunday, if there were things left over in the main sanctuary, if they picked them up. But the truth of the matter, and everybody, they always came with a little extra food and there were always a couple little kids running around and there was plenty for everyone, even though I know it had to be very, very, very difficult for these families to survive these Micronesian families surviving in freezing cold Provo, Utah, where they're not Mormon, right? They're not, they don't speak English. And so they have health difficulties. There was no connective tissue except for your sanctuary, Daniel. Your sanctuary and the connective tissue that I saw that was so apparent, it wasn't, it wasn't too a heritage that lived there for nine whole generations, which is nothing. It wasn't too, you know, uh, even a language, you know, that, that gave them identity. It was a direct connection through their actual sanctuary to God. God was their anchor. God was their foundation. God was why they were there. The sanctuary gave them, was the cornerstone, I believe, of their family and their existence. So I thank you. Like, I only came up with a couple loaves of bread, but you would give these lovely, amazing sermons that were both complex and also accessible because you would play to both audiences, wouldn't you? Do you think? I mean, they, that's what it seemed to me. Yeah, eventually they, they merged together, but you had those folks that have lived there for generations. Right, but, but and they were opinionated. We were kind of outsiders, right? So Provo, Utah, just across the street from Brigham Young University and the Missionary Training Center and whatnot. So 90% Mormon population there. So we're the oddballs anyway. So yeah. it almost doesn't matter if you look different or speak differently because you're an outsider. Uh, Except and for those that were of the, of the white community in your congregation, They'd been there for generations and they were the fighting kind, right? Because they'd always been on the, the opposite end of a, of a very opinionated or of some sort of, I don't know, it's so funny because it's just sort of like, when I do this heritage work with Mormonism, people go, oh, well, my grandmother ate two shoes and not just one. I mean, like, I mean, really, I mean, I'm like blue blood, you know? And so they were used to fighting a culture anyway. And so you have these layers of culture going on and you guys came in, you understood. And, the, and I think for you guys too, that, and I have, we have to explain that the sanctuary was not just any sanctuary. It kind of reminded me of the air force sanctuary. I still love the building, but at the end of the building are these two long, tall windows that go up with a cross kind of, creating a space in the glass and you look out of those windows do you remember the view out of those windows okay before the zions bank yeah then they built the bank across the yeah, street but tell them what was the view what was the view well you had the cross in front of you and right behind it opened up the beautiful mountains the beautiful mountains squaw peak which is like provo canyon and there are no other mountains like this it's beautiful and to have the cross in front of it to watch the sunset play out over those rocks and you guys were skiers and mountain people and i think not just your faith and your devotion to service but i think 
the mountains bound you to the place and made, gave you foundation, you know? I don't know, I could be wrong. But I really felt, I was always appreciative that you guys, had, your family had come from Germany and that, um, and that my surroundings of mountains and rocks and what, you know, gave you a sense that you appreciated the beauty in that, even though it was foreign to you. So, so anyway, so I think, you know, what it, what that project, and I wish it had continued forever. I mean, I tried to get donor after donor to see, see the beauty of that space as being, you know, we have the Rothko Chapel. We have the Rothko, I grew up in Houston and there's the Rothko Chapel. And I don't know, you're in Houston. Have, yeah, you, been, been there. have you been to the Rothko Chapel? Of course I have. I thank goodness. Thank goodness. But one of the reasons, one of the things that really inspired me about the sanctuary was not just the space and the architecture, but in my own church, I mean, you could actually connect with God with that kind of aesthetic. My own church doesn't do aesthetic in its buildings and it doesn't do, it, it has state mandated propaganda art. And I'm just going to say that it's propaganda. It's not art. And I have, I'm sorry, a fantastic art collection, a great art collection. And I remember I did a show. Do you remember the art show I did where I fed bread to Joan of Arc? Mm -hmm. The of bread and passion. And I brought in, you may not remember this, but I brought in one of the frustrations I had in my own churches. I always wanted to see religious, Mormon religious art or just religious handmade art in a religious space because it changed things completely. And let me give you an example of how it did. One of the paintings, I brought in maybe six or seven paintings, Mary Magdalene, a couple Christ paintings, the painting, and I brought in photos of my bread that I'd written on, and that was the bread, of course, is holy to me, and, and Christ, the bread of life, and Christ who rises, and the cross, and we can talk about that. But one of the paintings I brought in is a beautiful painting uh, by a Mormon artist named Bruce Smith, and it was Christ showing the prince to Thomas. And it's gorgeous, and there's people kind of leaning in, and it has that sense of Christ making himself completely bare, and accessible and Thomas is like, yeah, I wanted proof, but not that much proof, right? Kind of like the Caravaggio. And he's kind of pulling back and he's shocked by this. And I remember we put it kind of up towards the front of the sanctuary. And I remember, you won't remember this, but I think you had to tell me or you did tell the Micronesian congregation not to actually go up and touch the prince in Christ's hands which was like a light bulb because up to that point that painting had been a really great piece of art but it had never been an icon ever and art is one thing icon when you put it in a sanctuary it is like exponentially more powerful art may may motivate a single person like myself to do one act of good when you have an icon, when you have it in a sanctuary, it motivates an entire congregation of people to do an act of good. And I think that loops back to Cyrus. I think Cyrus understood that. I think he, he said, do I want the power of one to build my kingdom? Or do I want the power of 500 at every turn? You know, I think that was the key. Do I think Cyrus was an altruistic, and very humble man, no. Because the cylinder Cyrus says, I, the great Cyrus, king of the east and west and north and south wind, I, the great Cyrus, free you. 
and give you your saying. He's not humble, right? I'm not saying that he's evil by any means, but he's, he doesn't do it out of humility. He doesn't do it. I mean, Christ is, we're not, we don't have some Christian ethic yet. In fact, we have, we have a pretty barbaric ethic. He does it because great leaders lead in great ways. And I saw you as a great leader lead in great ways. You know, you didn't fight those that were in your space. You invited them to participate, which is, which is important. And the other thing is, I just heard this story, um, there's a famous story about a wagon train with, with Mormon handcart, a Mormon handcart, uh, the last one, and they get caught in a Wyoming uh, snowstorm 400 miles from Salt Lake. And they're starving to get death and they're, they have to bury their children. And, and it's um, all of the Mormons in Salt Lake are gathered in the tabernacle and Brigham Young gets up there and he just says, what are you doing? We're not having church today. Get up right now pack your wagons, pack supplies, and go get those immigrants, those people you don't even know. Do whatever you can to meet the immigrant that is on the other side of the snow. And, and Brigham even gets up as president of the Mormon church, and he marches 40 miles up the canyon in the snow until he takes ill and has to be drugged back to Salt Lake City. And I mean, there's a sermon in leadership right there. And I saw you as that leader. You never asked uh, your congregation to do something that you weren't willing to to be participating in. You know, you were there all the way through. The other thing, and I know this is supposed to be about my force of nature kind of thing, but I learned so much from you, Daniel. I really did. And you gave me per permission to care about people who were different than I. One of the things I loved is, do you remember the scout troop mm -hmm. that was there? It was really interesting which is super important. Here we're talking about um, kids who are not of your congregation, but they're not Mormon. And if anyone knows something, the, 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 the alliance between Boy Scouts and the Mormon church is very tight. My father was a scout leader. I had merit badges from when I was seven, but only Mormon kids get to join Mormon troops because they go along with each troop as assigned to each congregation. Well, guess what? Not everybody, not everybody is Mormon you know, which is sort of hard to tell a Mormon, you know, because that's all they can see, that's all they can say. So here is this band of families, and mostly boys, the red-headed boys. Remember the red-headed boys with just that flaming red hair? And I remember their logo was a firebird. Mm -hmm. It was a firebird. And, and um, there again, which is a deep symbol of the American West. In fact, their troop was like the first troop in Utah, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it was troop one, but then it had to rename because some mergers, whatnot, but yeah. It's yeah, exactly. But this was the original troop. This was the original crew. And you, there again, you gave space to the other. These are, that you didn't have to, right? They weren't of your congregation. They didn't mix in necessarily. And what was really interesting is after we had, redone the floors in the old sanctuary in the Minotrope Hall. And, and the floors look great. And the Micronesian um, population, the congregate part of the congregation had done the work. And then the Boy Scouts come in and they have this spaghetti fundraiser. And, uh, you know, who's going to clean spaghetti up off of carpet? But, but I remember the fundraiser. It was the time where these three different complete groups that found found solace, they found sanctuary. This is what sanctuary is about. I mean, this is the thing, as I keep talking, I mean, the whole point is this was sanctuary. You were offering protection 
to those who might have been rejected in other places. The other thing I remember was being there a little bit late every once in a while doing some work on the, on the hall or something, and the AA meetings would meet. And there again, a completely different group that never ever had space within a, a mainstream Mormon culture, you know? Well, they, they live were, on coffee. You couldn't do that in a Mormon you couldn't. Well, you got me hooked on coffee that year, FYI. <laughs> not telling you, Bishop. Uh, well, apparently, um, apparently Brigham Young with the Saints put coffee in the resupply. So what my, my, my mantra is, Daniel, um, as much as Emma Smith, never as much as Joseph Smith. And that's a little bit of an inside joke, but <laughs> you might get it. So I remember that group coming in. And I remember it was um, during, it was, we were campaigning and re for a re-election. And I had started an organization on BYU campus. You won't remember this part, but I asked you for permission because I started the BYU campus Democrats because Obama was running for election, he hadn't, you know, he was coming in and there was only campus Republicans, but there were no campus Democrats. And there was no space on campus to hold a space for campus Democrats. So we held these meetings in the, in the hall, like in that area where everybody gathered in the lobby area by the fireplace. So that was, that was super interesting. And so, I mean, it, it served so many purposes. I wish that I had been able to bring to the table and give to it what it gave to me. I wish that I had been able, and I brought people there and they loved it. I, I held an art show there um, and, and I did and, and these sorts of things. And, and the, the other thing is that's so important that we have to let people know is just down the street, two blocks down, at the time when you were there, is the beautiful Provo Tabernacle with, with an organ and it's the first building in Provo. And one night in the wintertime, somebody, it was December 10th, 2010. I remember the day well. Somebody had left some lighting. They were going to do some filming and they left something plugged in upstairs. And in the middle of the night, this building that was probably built, you know, 140 years ago, probably 1880s, it was built. Beautiful brick building burned to the ground. Like the icon of our city burned to the ground. We lost a beautiful Minerva Tykert mural that was priceless and we lost the organ and we lost our tabernacle right we lost our community place to gather I had hosted funerals there been to concerts there everyone was welcome in that space and the first thing that happens is that Daniel you opened the Provo Community Church to the Mormons those who may not have always supported you you said, I have a place for you, you know? And that was the thing. It was like, my door is open. This is how we treat the stranger. You know, you prepare the banquet, you know? And, and, and it was such a Christian act. And it was interesting because my church chose not to make a tabernacle again, but a closed temple. And it's, I mean, they spent millions and millions and millions. I saw the artwork that went in. It was gorgeous. But you have to be a very exclusive card carrying member of the church going into that building doing exclusive sort of of ceremonies that no one can talk about it was no longer open to our community yet the thing down the road that didn't have funding that didn't have the coffers of 
of Mormonism didn't have the didn't have the support and tithing of new skin and the Ronies who are in my ward FY but you know you didn't have that yet you found it somehow like you found the space I remember seeing when I would go there in church I don't and I and when my when my congr when my sacrament meeting would get boring, I'd tell Mark and my husband, I was like, I'd be like, okay, I'm going to art church. See ya. Daniel's preaching, and Bev, you know. And and I remember seeing the occasional, and it was difficult for others to read necessarily, but I'd see a a, a man maybe in his mid thirties sitting completely alone, not Micronesian part, not part of your white congregation. I knew instantly that this was probably an individual who was LGBTQ and had been rejected by the Mormon church and didn't feel like they had a place in the pews with the Mormons. And you gave a place for that. Talk about that, that part of your ministry. That came also with the Open and Affirming Covenant. Um, we had one of the first gay weddings there right after yeah. California legalized it. We had a blessing of a California legal Utah church wedding, so to say. Yeah. Um, that was beautiful. Um, it's probably the first big wedding my kids ever noticed. So yeah, <laughs> that, was, that was good. That's the normal for them. Yeah. Um, and then we were one of the founding partners of the Provo Pride Festival. Um, wow. We initiated that organization and uh, most Pride Festivals have an interface service somewhere at the beginning. Yeah. So that was held at our place. And then it went into the festival grounds and the parade and whatnot. Let me ask you a quick question. Arriving in Provo, were you prepared for, for the culture? I mean, people who are going to listen to this, there, there's no, and I have lived here for 20 years at least. No, 25 years I've lived, since 1988. And, and still, it is not budging. Still, those that are LGBTQ don't have a place in the pews, I believe, with the Mormon church. Still, they're fighting this. I mean, I cannot overstate from my side, and I know I asked the question, now I'm answering it. Tell me your experience, and you can be honest with me. Were, what did you, when you came and you were like, were you, were you like, really? Or how was your, how, what was your reaction to the culture? And how did that form your ministry? Well, look at me. I got it easy, right? I'm a white, cisgender, straight Christian man. So uh, I show repent, up. Daniel, repent. I'm clean shaven. I could pass as a Mormon. So You could. Yeah. In, fact, in fact, you were, maybe. So I was always greeted warmly. Um, sure. My ward folks showed up. I gave uh, talks at their... Uh, priesthood meetings and whatnot. So I was just a good neighbor. And the LDS church in Utah has that sense of stability. They're not afraid of institutional competition, so to say. So in Utah, as a minority religion, as long as you don't attack Mormons, you get treated nicely. I sure. mean, um, it's almost like a petting zoo. We, we, got, that, <laughs> we got that Hindu temple in in. Spanish Fork there, then the little Protestant You should have thrown your own color fest. <laughs> yeah, so um, as long as you enrich the culture and don't bite, yeah, they treat you kindly, and that works well. So, right. and I've received a lot of support and warmth uh, from. Sure, for you personally, but who did you see show up in your pews? Who? I mean, you, and and that's true. 
but who did you ever see somebody show up in their in your pews where you were like you don't have another place do you that's that's everybody who showed up yeah no that's so, true um you had those that were generationally longer there and always outcasts um you had the LBG, lgb2 folks that actually weren't expressly kicked out of the mormon church right and then you got those that lost their faith um yeah. for one reason or another um or just divorced which wasn't very accepted and whatnot so people fall from the mormon church and then they need to find their way back somehow right um, what i found on the average it takes them about seven years to detox yeah so a lot of times Seven years of no religion is good um, to just get rid of it. And then you can start fresh and then you end up more on the liberal side to begin with. Sure. Um, and that's when they washed up in our sanctuary eventually. Exactly. And that's, that's huge to point out because what I see is the trend in post-Mormonism, which is a trend. I mean, not a trend, but it's sort of like there's a bleed out. It's like an intellectual bleed out. But the thing of it is, is, Mormonism is like you believe it all or you believe nothing. And and what was heartbreaking for me being a Christian artist, being having this this drive of Cyrus and I have to talk about the cross Daniel if you don't mind cuz sometimes I I carve the the cross on top of the bread and that's significant to me, you know. And I Mormons don't do crosses by the way, but we do circles since the think, 50s or so. Originally Well, right? the thing of it is is that it's always a little heartbreaking that they take the dogma and the dictum and they can't accept that and they take the, the they take the bigotry or the or these other things and with that goes christ and and there again i'm sorry to wax like schmaltzy or religious or whatever i just love jesus i'm sorry and so it's hard for me sometimes what you provided was this middle ground space and i hope people can come back to christianity you know I really do because the service within that is endless. And I just, do you mind if I, if I talk a little bit about my um, bread work and why I make the bread and what the, a little bit. So, so I did well, the art. started and, out. That's a wonderful. So, okay. So, you know, hot cross buns, you know, hot cross buns were developed and there's the cross on the buns. And this is how you silently told somebody you were Christian. You, 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 maybe it was, maybe you'd be persecuted, but if you made hot cross buns, sort of like the fish in the sand, right? Loaves and fishes. It, but, but it, and you need to come fishing at my ranch because you've had my bread, but you should see the trout and the lake. But anyway, loaves and fishes. And so, um, so the cross for Mormons is difficult because we kind of don't want to be Catholic and we want our own thing. But Mormons do circles and we do all true circumscribe. We do, we do sacred geometry. And I was looking at this cross over and over again that I would carve on top of my bread. It was just a very typical, you just take two razor blade slices and it's like hot crust buns. Yeah, I have to explain that my loaf of bread is 14 cups of flour. This is not your average loaf of bread, people, right? It's, it's a very large loaf of bread. It's, it is solidly feel, feeds 20 people. I mean, and that's the whole point. Christ said, prepare the banquet, right? prepare the banquet. I have no fun unless I can feed 20 people at a time. So anyway, so I was looking at this cross over and over again. And of course, of course, the Last Supper happens during Passover, which is the festival of unleavened bread, flat bread, 
right? And I have this big fluffy bread and I'm always going, who made the bread for the last supper? And, 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 and in, in traditional Western art, it is depicted, the last supper is depicted with this big Andy loaf of bread, right? Yet it was the festival of unleavened bread. And, and Christ says, I am the bread of life and he is risen. Two words that are important if you make bread. Now there's the, there is the last supper, right? Which is Passover. The next day is Gethsemane, where he drinks of the what? What does he drink? What kind of cup? What Tom. kind of a bitter cup? He drinks of the bitter cup, and that is essential because what do you have growing right now? What do you have in your kitchen that is growing? My sourdough. Yes. And if you taste your sourdough start, how does it taste? Sweet? No, it's sour. It's bitter. It's bitter. He drinks of the bitter cup, which is that it is the bitterness of our life. It is the bitterness. It is within the bitterness of our existence that gives us rise. It is the bitterness that elevates us. Now, the next day, of course, is Golgotha, right? He carries, he bears his own cross. He stumbles three times. Women help him these times, stations of the cross, and he gets there. And there I am, a Mormon, and we don't worship the Christ. I mean the cross. We worship the Christ. But the cross, even an empty cross, right? Like, and we never stop working. Like, there's nothing still. And I'm thinking of this. And in the Old Testament, they always want to go up. We shall go up, they say all the time in Hebrew. We shall go up to rise. Levare in Latin. Levare, to go up, to rise. It is the root of, of elevate, uh, levitate, uh, elevate, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Alleviate. It is the word of leavening it is a word of of um oh my gosh i just thought of the, my brain just turned off it is the word of lever and all of a sudden for me being a mormon i saw the cross not as a stationary cross but a moving cross a live cross i saw the atonement as the fulcrum of the greatest machine ever and there's a scripture and i don't know if it's mormon or if it's in the bible i'm sorry because sometimes they get mixed up in my head is there is there a scripture in the new testament that christ goes above all things and below all things it's a mormon scripture fyi you need to read the book of Mormon. so the scripture well, you can say he goes to he goes down to hell and then ascends to heaven that's in the apostle exactly. Yeah. Specific, specifically in the Book of Mormon, there is a scripture that says Christ must go above all things and below all things. And for me, what I saw is I saw this cross as a lever, and I saw all of the fallen, all of the fallen, all of us of humanity, right? All of humanity, the fallen, on one end, and I saw Christ on the other end, going above all things and below all things and creating this wheel that lifts us into immortality. And Christ asks that our burdens be light and our heart be easy, not because we are heavy to him, because we're like gnats on a like a Mack truck. It's because the ride is fun. 
it's fun. And I, I knew this when I tried to be the lever in somebody else's life. Like I had a great time working with the Micronesian congregation that you, at your church and working, meeting Esther. The ride is fun. The ride of Christian service is fun. So personally, as I made these breads and I was carting a cross, cross on top of them, of course it symbolized Christ in the same way that, and that I'm a Christian in hot cross buns, but I made it specifically for those who were likewise levers raising other people to higher places like yourself, like people who make art shows, people who host humanitarian benefits. And it's my own subtle like secret language, but that's my philosophy on the bread of life and why, why Passover and the, and, the, and the Last Supper was probably, was absolutely a flat bread, drinks of the bitter cup, which gives rise to a risen Christ. And there again, the leavening, and, and to go up. So I'm sorry to sort of get off track, but thank you for oh, letting me preach. <laughs> that's exactly where we started out with the bread that you brought and a similar one I got rising in my kitchen right now. Yes. But did I just hear you explain how we came to having leavened bread for communion? Because that has always bugged me. You that know, that is actually an important bread for communion. And I know it's wrong because I know it's supposed no, no, no. to be unleavened. And I tell you, there, this goes back to the reason why there is a wafer. Did you know Greek, Greek Orthodox? The, no, the Greek Orthodox uses 11 bread, but the regular Catholic like doesn't. Like there is a, there's a controversy through this as to if the wafer is specifically an unleavened bread on purpose. Of Greek course. Orthodox. And that's how it should be. But then you just told no, me no. the bitter cup. Mormon, and do you know that Mormons, Mormons partake of an actual leavened bread every Sunday. So there again, as a doctrinal point, I do, and here I'm, I am belying my Mormonism. I do believe that Christ is a risen Christ. I do believe when we eat of the body of Christ, we too are given rise to things. Now, the unleavened bread, whether that, that belongs to a pre-risen bread that will rise, whether it belongs to the bread of plague, which everybody's baking bread, and of course, the, the, the manna from heaven that they didn't have time to let the bread rise. You can't even put leavening. I mean, there is no rise to that bread. I believe I, that's, a, that, that's out of my pay range. That's out of my pay range, Daniel. I know that I was raised on a sacrament of, of risen bread that was ripped apart and broken that only through breaking the bread, and that's the same with my bread. I mean, everybody's like, Andy, you should put your bread in a museum. I'm like, no, the bread means nothing unless it is torn apart, ripped apart, and consumed. I mean, the, the work I have, a, one of my favorite breads is one that says, this work is realized when it is destroyed. And I think Christ felt the same. He's like, no, rip me apart. Like, get into me, like get into Christianity, ask me questions, you know? Here he is, the Caravaggio there again. When Thomas, bring your doubt, like bring it. I have no problem with doubt. Just come close to me. Like he invites Thomas to him. He's like, I have no, if it is in your doubt, if it is because of your doubt, you, you, you pull close to me, I love your doubt. I honor your doubt. And there he is, full, like barely, like 
he's barely hatched resurrected. You know what I mean? Like it still hurts. Like it still hurts. And he says, and he's so confident. He's like, I love your doubt because your doubt is, is what is making you ask enough questions that you're actually asking about me, that you're actually willing to touch me. And I love that feature. I, I wanna write an essay called um, uh, the, the Benefit of Doubt, you know? There's a real benefit to doubt. And, I, and anyone who questions the Christ and, and wants to question the Christ, it means they ain't dead yet. That's right. <laughs> so we covered a whole lot of ground in the past. I know. When it's so fun to talk to somebody, program. though, that can keep up and we can just talk doctrine. And I'm sorry it's weird Mormon doctrine, but I, I, I'm a deeply Christian artist. Like, I do a performance art. The bread is the risen Christ, you know, bread. And, and, and acts of service is the whole point. And I was inspired to come to your sanctuary by my father's dying words because I'm that weird. Where are you going today? What are current projects you're working on? Well, my big thing is I have a kind of myopic um, culture. So during Black Lives Matter, my big things, well, my first priority, I don't know if you've noticed my turquoise, but I have been actively really strongly um, since the beginning of this pandemic, working to fundraise. I've been so impressed with the Native community, the Native American community in Utah, because their first priority, I'm talking about these super hipsters who are like in their 20s and riding Harleys with tattoos. And this virus hit the, hit the Navajo reservation early. And the first thing they did is say, stop, drop, and roll. Our elders are in trouble. So I started a nonprofit called Help Our Native Elders. Um, we generated maybe $14,000 and got PPE and uh, supplies took it, you know, they have no running water or electricity. So that's my first priority is always to listen and provide space and sanctuary um, for my native, for, because my, for my native American hosts, right? I'm a guest on their land and, and I'm so honored that they let me partner with them. My next project that I'm working on is I've got a couple of Mormon symposiums um, coming up and I'm focusing on I'm focused on calling it the, the art of color. And I'm taking the lens of Mormon artists of color and how they see themselves and the art they're doing. I'm showing them, they've asked me, Andy, what is the future of Mormon art? I'm, I'm saying it's our Mormon artists of color. And, and not only do we need to see them as they see themselves, we need to, we need to foster and grow spaces where they can be free to figure out finally how to see themselves. I'm, I'm working with several artists. It's super interesting, Dan, Daniel, because what's typical within Mormonism is that the mother will be white and the father be black and the mother will be Mormon and the raised Mormon, but these children look black and they, and they, but they identify Mormon growing up and they're always in this confused state. And so for them to find out about their black history at BYU, which is 99% white, is really interesting and i found several artists who were painting these strong images of slavery and and real learning about them for the first time they literally were learning about slavery and where the slave trade happened and how it was their ancestors at this university and their art teachers are going no that's shock and awe art that's that's just sensationalism 
And I'm like, oh, was it this art instructor and this art instructor and this white guy art instructor? So I, I really feel good about just, um, and you know, you can't just throw seeds out in a garden and just hope that they grow. You have to cultivate it. You have to provide a space. You have to, you have to make a protected area for them to be able to thrive. And that's, that is, yes, it's one thing to, to say, it's one thing this, and I'm gonna vent, because either I can create an art show of, of my Mormon artists of color and how they see themselves, or I can form a white woman book club and we can talk about our white fragility, you know? <laughs> so, so I'm getting to work that way. And I feel really good about that. What else am I up to? I work for a, a journal of uh, Mormon thought. I'm very much interested. Everybody's like, Andy, what's the future? What's the future? I said, the future lies squarely on understanding very well our past. Otherwise, we, we have no idea where we're going unless we know where we've been. So it, even though people are saying, what's the next, what's the next? I'm like, it's the last, it's the last. The other thing I'm working on, and this is the last thing is, you remember Pioneer Day? Mm -hmm. Pioneer Day is the 24th of July and it celebrates the day. And I did the big reenactment, whatever. And I love Pioneer Day. It was like my favorite day. It still is. But one of the things that's interesting is, of course, is that with my Native friends, Pioneer Day is a deeply, it's, it's, a, it's a painful day because this is when people come in and displace them. The other thing is, is Daniel, do you remember, what we have in Utah and Salt Lake and in Scoring and Provo is a very hardy and well-supported refugee culture. Not only just refugees, but asylum seekers. And I'm seeing more and more BYU law school alumni doing pro bono work. I'm seeing spaces created for the other, for the immigrant. I mean, Mormons were immigrants. And so what I've decided to do is this Pioneer Day on the 24th of July is do immigrant pioneers. And this is interesting because, because I mentioned how hard people work to get the immigrants into the valley, right, earlier. What's interesting is historically, it took nearly two months to get past that snow. They were, October 4th, they left Salt Lake. The last company pulls in from 400 miles away on November 30th. And what happens, and this is, I think, 1863, what happens in, is when this last company of foreigners, foreigners, they speak, they speak Swedish and, and uh, just Norwegian and different languages. They were Scottish and here's some English. I mean, there's gotta be a lot of racial tension. What they did is they didn't throw a parade for the first that arrived in this place. They threw a parade for the last that arrived. So I'm working to change Pioneer Day to Immigrant Day where we throw a parade for the last ones who arrived in the valley. We throw a parade for the Sudanese asylum seeker who just showed up two weeks ago, for the Congolese-inspired uh, man, Leonard um, Balgwali, who started Utah Valley Refugees. That's who gets the parade. So that's what I'm up to, is that I'm, I, my big goal is to, is to use my Christianity in a, in a form of social justice. Yeah. Am I keeping up as a force of nature? Yes, you are. <laughs> I hope you're still baking. I hope you're still doing it. I baked today. Did I send you the bread that I made a couple days ago? Yeah. Unto the yeast of these, my sisters. <laughs> my next bread, you'll like this. I, I, and I've put this out there, so I have to do it. 
And I'm giving you the challenge because it's people like you who like give their sourdough starts like a social security number mm -hmm. and like make them dependent. And so you can like do a tax write off and whatever. My next bread, I, you know, we hit, when we hit about a hundred thousand deaths, I was just in grief with COVID and the world caught on fire after that. And the marches were really powerful, but I still am in deep grief. And, and I think by the end of July, we will re reach about 144 COVID deaths. And probably no one I know, like no one in my immediate family is going to die of this, but it's hitting hard the marginalized. It's hitting hard those who have to live very close to each other and don't have a lot of services. And it, and it just hurts. And so one of the things I realized is that 100,000 steps, 100, when we hit 100,000 deaths, I, 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 I translated that to steps and it's about 50 miles. And I, my next loaf of bread, when I decide to do this, you have to hold me to task, is take up thy bread and walk. Mm -hmm. Take up thy bread and walk. And, and the challenge is, is we put away our sourdoughs. We get out of our kitchen. Like, you, we cannot comfort eat and bake forever. It is time to honor those whose lives have been lost in this terrible pandemic because our terror, due to our terrible, terrible administration and in a social distance way, you know, always there's this pilgrimage and we, we always have, we have these funeral uh, marches, but to walk in honor of the dead. And as the death toll rises, my steps will get, get more and more. So my goal is to make this bread, take up thy bread and walk and then do a performance art and, and somehow document it of me walking. Oh, maybe it, maybe it might take, I'm not doing it in a weekend. I'm, I'm not one of those crazy people who's gonna like run the back of the mountains in one day, 50 miles. No, it doesn't matter how long it takes us. And, I'm, and my challenge is to others, many people have been paralyzed by this virus and not left their houses in four months. And so my challenge is that it doesn't matter how long it takes you, and, I'm, and I've gone through this, I'm gonna send you a link to my friend Fatima Saleh, who's a black reverend, he used to be Mormon, she's amazing, and I'm like, Fatima, I have to do this, but I'm going, Jesus is going, Andy, take up thy bed and walk, but I'm like going, but Jesus, I'm sick, I'm sick, Jesus, can't you tell? <laughs> so that's my next work, which doesn't sound like it's gonna end up in any museum, it's not, the, it's not like climbing Everest, but it is what Jesus wants me to do right now. So keep the wheel spinning, keep having fun following <laughs> Christ. Well, I hope one day I make such a beautiful loaf of bread that it invites you to think about coming skiing here again sometime. I would love that. I would love that. It would just be fun to see your family around and 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 you know, maybe I need to go back because you know I grew up in Houston. I grew up in Houston. I think uh, the best people live in Houston. The absolute best people and the best food. The worst weather ever. But I learned how to be, um, my sense of community, I really do, feels, I feel strongly that it does come from growing up in Texas. You know, it was big enough for, for everyone. And that was something that I'm really, really super grateful for as well. So anyway. You're creating that spirit in Mormon land there. Thank you for I'm, that. I mean the Texan in Mormon land, the South Texan in Mormon land. Daniel, it's been great. Thank you so much for the invitation. Well, thanks for joining me today. Will you check back in with me later and make sure I'm still like a force of nature? I'll hold you to those steps. <laughs> All righty. Okay. You promise. We'll see you, Daniel. Yep.